This is Sarah with an exciting announcement. We have just launched the SideWoo Collective, a new inclusive community of artists, metaphysical practitioners, and the Woo Curious. The SideWoo Collective is, for now, an online community focused on art, the metaphysical, and general wellness. Essentially all the things you love about the podcast, but in real life. Our first offering is a three-week online course with classes every Sunday at 6 p.m. between February 12th and the 26th. Classes include sigil making with artist and educator Rachel Dawson, Intuition 101 with tarot reader and Scottish witch Amelia Whitehouse of the Carnelian Keep, and Drawing Your Shadow with Yours Truly. You can go to our new website, thesidewoo.com, to sign up, get on our mailing list, or reach out with any questions. This will be a great way to engage with one another and get a better understanding of who this community is. I'm really excited to share it with you and hope to see you there. Hi, this is Sarah Tebow. And this is Liz Bernstein, and we are the hosts of the Side Woo Podcast. This is a space to investigate what makes a creative life possible, from the mundane to the sublime, the physical to the metaphysical. Welcome to the Side Woo. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of The Side Woo. This is Sarah Tebow, your co-host. Today's episode, we talk with Shannon Taggart, and she is a true inspiration and a pioneer in the world of contemporary occult studies and photography. Her book, Seance, was first published in 2019 and features decades of research and artwork documenting the spiritualist community in and around the town of Lilydale. It is being released again this year due to popular demand, and as of this recording in October 2022, it's currently on pre-order, so you can go on Amazon, you can go on our website, we'll put a link in show notes, but it should be ready for December 2022, pre-holidays. Shannon was introduced to us by our previous guest, Jesse Bransford, so thank you to him for making this connection. And thank you for Peter Rotowski for connecting us to Jesse. I don't think I said that in the previous interview we did. But just like Jesse, Shannon is a complete wealth of knowledge. Her studies have centered around spiritualist photography and the history of both spiritualism and photography. She's, you know, I feel like we could have talked for hours on the subject and just kept expanding and going on to infinity. So we had a really great conversation. I hope you enjoy if you do have any questions or interest in any subject that we haven't covered yet or someone that you think we should talk to, feel free to email us at thesidewoo at gmail.com or DM us on Instagram. Please rate, subscribe, follow, and review our podcast because that goes a long way in helping us get shared on Apple and Spotify. And yeah, that's pretty much it for now. So enjoy the episode. Do you remember in the height of the pandemic, there was all of these like random people crashing other people's Zoom meetings? Oh, yeah. And you would have sort of, you know, interlopers who... Back in the days. Go and like flash or something. Like yeah. I don't know what they did. It was just kind of gross. Basically not much, but right. <laughs> well, cool. I mean, just to kick things off, maybe we could ask what your sign is. Um, I am a Gemini. 
We just had another Gemini. That's interesting. What's your rising? Um, Scorpio rising and Aquarius moon. I was going to say, if you don't have something major Scorpio, I would be really shocked. Yes. Yes. So that is my, that's my stats. Okay. Thanks for indulging us on that one. Well, one of the things we wanted to just start with is maybe having you talk a little bit about your spiritual background. Your book, Seance, is a long-term project based on your interest in spiritualism. But if you want to just back up and talk about what your spiritual life has been and is now. Okay, sure. So I was raised Catholic and I also grew up not far from Lilydale, the town Lilydale, which is the world's largest spiritualist community. And when I was younger, my Catholic cousins would go there in the summer and get readings or, you know, they have these out, these outdoor message services where the medium will stand at the front and just pick people out of the crowd. And my cousin Rita went when I was in high school, she was older than me. She went and a medium at Lilydale told her, her grandfather was there and he wanted to tell her how he really died and he had choked and she was like, oh my gosh, this woman's crazy. And she thought it was really funny and weird. And she came home and told her parents and my father's brother, her father, my uncle Tom said, no, that's true. And so mm-hmm. then it ended up being this, we found out this weird family story about when my grandfather was dying of brain cancer, he actually did not die of the cancer. He did have a choking accident and that's actually how he died, but none of us knew this. And so- Wait, what happened again? Because I think you told us when we did our pre-call, mm-hmm. something happened at the hospital, right? Yeah. He was given food, even though he wasn't supposed to be have been fed food. Somebody gave him food and he choked on it and died. And Was he pissed? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I've asked mediums, why do they always, why do spirits always come and tell you the, the last, you know, the way that they died? That seems to be the thing that, you know, it's always like they're telling you about their death. And this one medium explained it to me and said, well, it's kind of like when you go into a restaurant and you remember the last thing you ate there, it's like their last experience in this Mm -hmm. world. So it's, it's sort of, you know, that's protocol usually how they, they come and they tell you how they died. And so I don't know if he was pissed or he just wanted to tell her about it. I, I don't know, but she said it was really strange because the woman's voice became very masculine and actually she did a choking thing and it ended up being true. And I just thought, how could this woman possibly have known this? Because it had happened 30 years before. She didn't know my cousin's name. You know, when you go to a message service, you don't put your name. You just go anonymously and sit on a bench and they pick you out to get these messages. And they just stand in front of you and channel whatever comes through or? Yeah. Yeah. They just pick people out from the crowd and just randomly give these messages. So that's how I became aware of spiritualism. And around the same time, I had started doing photography, but I never saw them as related in any way whatsoever. And I got a degree in photography, and then I was working as a photojournalist. And I was doing assignments that were not that interesting to me. I really wanted to do a long-term documentary project. And so I thought, oh, in my spare time, maybe I'll go to Lilydale and just see what's going on in this strange little town that, you know, it's very unique and I grew up nearby. And so then here I am 20 years later. (laughs) 
Did that incident with the medium at Lilydale, did that have the same ripple effect in your family or did it sort of put you on a different course from what their spiritual investigation? Because it sounds like that was such a pivot point for you. It was a pivot point for me, but some people in my family don't even remember that story. I mean, I remember it very vividly. A lot of my cousins have gone for many years for readings, so it wasn't as big of a deal to everybody. I mean, my family was shocked and I remember my dad being upset and my mom being shocked and a lot of emotion. And But they've gotten other readings that certain members of my family are very open to it. I mean, we're all Irish Catholic, like, I mean, I'm American, but you know, in the Irish heritage, Irish Catholic, I think there is an openness to that. And my Catholic relatives have told me it's not that Catholicism doesn't believe anything that spiritualists believe. It's just, you're supposed to believe in Catholicism over spiritualism. Right. Or that it's dangerous maybe to... Right. But um, I mean, if you look at, I've always been fascinated with the lives of the saints. And I mean, those that's like medium 101. <laughs> when you learn about what mediumship is, it's, it's a, almost identical. Say more about that. Well, like, for example, Padre Pio, who was the, this Italian saint, he was active in the 1950s, and he was levitating and bilocating. And uh, so a lot of physical mediumship. Yeah, yeah, like the the physical stuff, the talking to the dead, or I mean, a lot of it depends on the saint, but there's a lot of similarities between medium experience and the lives of the saints. And in fact, in Lilydale, I've met quite a few mediums who are former nuns or priests. So I do believe that there is overlap. Could you just give the listeners a, a brief logline pitch of what Lilydale is? So Lilydale is a tiny town in upstate New York. It's about an hour away from Niagara Falls. And it's located on a beautiful lake called Lake Casadega. And it is, it's been there since 1879 as a spiritualist community. In the summer, it kind of runs like a psychic summer camp where you can take classes in all different types of mediumship. And they have this beautiful spot there called the healing temple where they do laying of hands on healing. And I believe it's three times a day they have these message services. And every day at 2.30, there's a, a lecture about spiritualism and a demonstration of mediumship. So it's usually like end of June to Labor Day is when it's like really, that's their season. But you can go in not being a somebody who knows the community well, right? Like you can go experience. Yeah. You pay a gate fee and with your gate fee, you can go to free healings, the free message services. There's a lot of like nature trails. Their holiest spot is a place called Inspiration Stump, which is, I actually, the listeners won't be able to see this, but I can show you. I have like a little, um, a small version of it. Looks like a stump with some stairs. Yes. It's a hemlock tree stump. Supposedly the tree was struck by lightning and then so that it was cut down and then the mediums would, they stand next to it. They used to stand on top of it and give messages. And it's like an old growth forest and there's a lot of wooden benches. It's really peaceful and beautiful. So it's sort of like an outdoor cathedral. That's one of the spots. There's a couple spots where they do the message services. And why do you think people gravitated towards Lilydale as a town? Well, it was a place where all these 
you know, when it first started, all these, a lot of radicals were interested in spiritualism, like, you know, women's rights advocate, like Susan B. Anthony used to hang out in Lilydale, people who were fighting against slavery and fighting for marriage reform and children's rights and vegetarianism or holistic healing. A lot of mesmerists or people who were into mesmeric healing were, they were all congregating there. And so it, you know, just became like a hotbed for all these, really um, for many intellectuals to get together and exchange ideas that I, I believe, you know, Rochester, New York was the hotbed of all of this activity. And I, I think it was at the end of a train line. I think it was because it was on a lake. How far is Lilydale from Rochester? It's about a l- under two hours, maybe okay. like an hour and 45 minutes. I mean, because of Kodak and Rochester Mm -hmm. and then your interest in photography and then photography's relationship to spiritualism. I somehow wasn't expecting Rochester to come up and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I went to school in Rochester. And what I found out, what's really interesting is, you know, I mean, when I started this project, I had no idea that I was going to find the history that I found or that I was going to find deep connections between photography itself and spiritualism. But what I did discover is that actually on the same, the street where the Kodak tower is literally down that street is where the first seances were. So there there is this huge geographic connection. Okay. That's really wild actually. It is. It is. It really is. I invite someone to do research on that. It's wild. I mean, granted, Kodak started later. It wasn't like at the exact, but it the location is just, it's mm. too uncanny. I think it was probably the first seances, I think, were like 1848, 1849. Um, Spiritualism started in 1848, in March 31st, 1848. But I'm not sure when the, the exact date of the Corinthian Hall, the first public demonstration of mediumship was at the place called Corinthian Hall in Rochester. Oh. I mean, that is so soon after the birth of photography, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, it's so interesting that it... I mean, the traditions of talking to the dead must be much older than, obviously, 1840, yeah. but to have those two. Can I just ask, can we talk about that connection between photography and spiritualism? And yeah, that? yeah, it's amazing. Why, what do you think it is? I, you know, I don't know, but I, I was shocked to like really think about that. Like, oh, they came about so close in years. Spiritualism has its own tradition of photography called spirit photography. I went to school. It was not in the history books. It was not discussed. I was in the city of Rochester, where this history was at the photo Mecca, which is RIT, you know, I mean, at the time where I went, there was like five different photo majors. We, we studied the history extensively and it was never presented. And so I had to do my own research after I got out of school. And what I discovered is that people, as soon as they could, they were trying to photograph spirits. They were investigating spiritualism with photography and as a result of those investigations, those were the first images to call the photographic reality into question. So I like to say that it's almost like, you know, they danced with one another. They exposed each other's complicated relationship with truth. 
And there were plenty of experiments going on. And now it is a lot more common for people to acknowledge or discuss these early examples of photography. But, you know, when I started, which was in the year 2001, it was not, there was not, I I learned about spirit photography from the spiritualists. That's who taught me about it. I mean, I remember spirit photography being talked like when it was the idea of truth and is it true and is it not true? And then that being the cornerstone of what is photography. But I remember spiritual photography being talked about as a way to understand people doing hoaxes on, you know, Victorian, but, but the, and, you know, Victorian seances, and then it was all debunked and it was all like, you know, sort of playing tricks on people. But I'm trying to figure out a way to, it's almost like our investment in trying to understand it. Is it real? Is it not real? And having the same cycle over and over again of people using a photograph to think about something that can be seen, that can't be seen, that's both time-based and eternal. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I... I don't know, like I was at school, so I graduated college in 1998. And the the photo histories that we use, they had just started accepting and talking about the post-mortem photography. Oh, yeah. Even even like vernacular, but I really didn't see any. When when we were talking about trick photography, the Rylander stuff or like the, the stuff that was obviously faked was talked about, but never, I didn't get any of these debates about the realness of spirit photography. So it kind of went off on my own. And what is kind of funny is that there is, even with Mumler, who was first spirit photographer, there is some true mystery on how he was doing it. You know, I mean, there's stories of him going into somebody else's studio and just being able to do these manipulations and make them look the exactly the same. And he was never caught. I mean, he got off on the, the court case, but he died miserable and penniless. He threw his, his stuff into the Hudson river at the end. So, and it wasn't just spirit photography. It was also a lot of this cameraless photography and the trying to get auras or electricity or using the photographic material. What could the photographic material tell us about the life force? Mm-hmm, and yeah. there was, so, and then the x-ray happened. So then there was a renewed faith in that we really were going to penetrate the invisible with all this photography. Hmm. What's your stance on aura photography? So when you, okay. So when you say aura photography, you're thinking of those like colorful. Yeah, exactly. Those, I think they use some kind of electromagnetic something to take a photo. It's, it's like a biofeedback mechanism. So you put your hands in the biofeedback thing and a photograph is made, but that aura is being overlaid based on the numbers that are, or, you know, what the, what it's reading from your fingers. The, yeah. The information that they're getting from the hands. I think they're interesting and beautiful. I know there's, there's a few people who do real serious experiments with them, yeah. um, but I have never, I've sat for them, but I don't have the device. It's really expensive. And I don't think they make them anymore. Right. But the Polaroid version is like, the ones that shoot the Polaroids, it's $10,000. It's really yeah. expensive. Yeah. Did you feel like when you got it done, it was reflective of what, because, you know, you have people who can read auras. So I don't know if you tested it against a medium or someone who could read aura. I, I went to Magic Jewelry in New York and I got a reading 
one of the ones that I did. And I thought it was like very interesting and pretty accurate. Okay. You know? I think, I think it's, I think they're fun. I think they're beautiful too. Yeah. I mean, the reason I ask is I had one that I took in Japantown in San Francisco and I was kind of nervous and I don't really totally know why, but so when I took the photo, I did this energy shield of light around me as a way to manipulate what would happen in the photo. And then we got the photo back and it was like, golden light and pink and then there were these like this wave of light blue from my head and my shoulders down and at the time I just thought like it was kind of in the palette that I was working in for my paintings and so I just thought like oh wow this is exactly like my paintings and I it kind of saw it as this like abstract thing but I've worked as a medium and gone to healers and I've talked about this in previous episodes but I've had ghosts around me most of my life And basically now knowing what I know, I look at that photo. I looked at it again after a few years and I was like, oh my God, it's three people standing on either side of me and one behind me. It totally blew my mind because I was like, oh my God, that's what those outlines are. It's people. It's not just a random wave. So I don't know how reading, because I put my fingers in this little metal slot and I'm like, I don't know how that could translate to what it produced, but I felt like that is insanely accurate. If, if that's in fact what it did, I don't know. So I, I'm like, I would love to like hire this person to do a whole series because. Yeah. I I think it would be interesting to, to do multiple. I've never done a serious like exploration of it, like either with my getting my portrait or using the device but I do think it's interesting. I love the synchronicity with the photographic process and the invisible situations. And, you know, I mean, I, so I try to play with the photographic process as much as possible and try to create this synchronicity because I do think photography is a very metaphysical process and it does tell us there's something telepathic and, and, very uncanny and almost divinatory about elements of photography, but it's not in the literal way that we want it to be, you know? Right. Um, Like the medium is light and light is inherently associated with the divine. So you'd think there'd be this like one-to-one, but yeah, it's not quite that way. And also, I mean, the, the classic story is, and I've heard this many, many times, both in texts and reporting people that when you do see something real, the camera stops or it won't shoot or you can't get to it or something blocks you from making the picture of the thing that you're seeing visually. That's a very common story, actually. Well, like your camera is super fuzzy and I think that you might have a couple ghosts behind you. Do you do you ever feel like you have ghosts around you? No. Well, I if I ever do have that feeling, I try to say no, I don't. I'm very nervous about the physical stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I just felt like when you were talking about Lilydale, I got this mm-hmm. sense that there was someone on your left side and they were kind of proud. Like, yeah, oh, they were like very happy that you were being a spokesperson for Lilydale. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, but maybe good, they just good. popped in and popped out. Oh, that's <laughs> funny because I got that message recently to there a, a woman I had known at Lilydale. The medium said that she was there to to say that she was really proud of me. 
Oh, so maybe funny. it was that person. They were like, yeah. I'm here. Yeah. Well, that's cute. This is just a quick photo nerdy question from what you said a couple of minutes ago. How did you learn who Raylander was? I don't mean like where, but like, how was he taught to you? Because you just, was he taught to you as he was faking his realities or Isn't was he it the one I think he did collages if yeah I'm he thinking. did yeah he, yeah he did like the wild collages where you would see sort of you know you could see the texture of the clouds outside yeah. the room and like 17 different negatives that were pieced together in a perfectly beautiful way I think he did like the two ways of life yeah one yeah. that was sort of you know sin and debauchery and the other one which was like piety but the way he was taught to me was like almost like this postmodernist exploration of there's no absolute truth so I just honed in on I was like oh my gosh well where did you go to photo school I'm curious I love I love Um, photo I so I did a year at the main photographic workshops mm-hmm. when I was in my mid twenties, but and then I went to the San Francisco Art Institute. But I taught black and white photo one for a long time, and you know, so we're t- talking to kids, and so there's always a lot of exactly what we're saying: is it real? Is it not real? So I would show that picture and be like, people were scandalized by the idea that what you were seeing wasn't a true representation of what was in front of them. And it it was almost sacrilege to, to be able to manipulate visual reality in that sense. But look at how this person has acted a reality that's reflective more of our inner spaces than our outer spaces using the language of our outer spaces. But I, it's like the idea that Raylander. I don't know. I'm almost flustered thinking about it because I'm like, oh my gosh, it's not just sort of this postmodern. It, I mean, of course, it's not just a postmodern from like 1865, but we yeah. considered like a cheap- yeah trick photography. That's when we talked to the process. We used the Rosenblum photo. Oh yeah, and we did talk about like photographic reality, but like not in the spirit photography way. Like, I mean, those examples were never shown. And especially when I saw ectoplasm pictures, I mean, that like really shocked me. If the listeners haven't seen them, ectoplasm, it's usually women sprawled out with oozing white material or things that look like gauze, like out of all of their orifices. And I I mean, that, when I found that, I mean, I was interested in the spirit photographs because they were so odd and so wacky and so so fake but also genuine in their attempt of what they're trying to capture emotionally or the construction of grief that they were trying to create but like when I saw ectoplasmic pictures I was truly shocked like I, and I wanted to know everything about them and what the heck was going on I, I I often say that I feel like the spiritualist photography is kind of it's one of the most odd and uniquely unsettling moments in the history of photography. And it's also, I like to say that like spiritualism is to photography as Catholicism is to painting because spiritualism is the first religion to use that new medium to make, to make a visual iconography, to make images that told what they were teaching and Mm. what they believed. And they're, they're really silly and shocking and wild and strange. And some of them are really gross and scary. And so I just wanted to unpack and understand that history. I love that analogy. And that actually helps me situate it because I think 
as a non-photography student, I'm a painter. I was kind of struggling to get my mind around what is the concrete relationship between photography and visualism and trying to capture the metaphysical world. And I think that's such a great way of talking about it because one thing in my medium classes we talk about is being an advocate for the spirit world. And in a way, these photographers were doing that, although maybe they felt pressure at the time to make it real instead of with the painting, it's clear that it's a metaphor or it's depicting something that you maybe don't see with your eyes because it uses all this metaphorical imagery and, you know, like the halos and whatever, which obviously we're not seeing. But so I wonder if there was anything in your research that talked about it being more of a system of signs or symbolic rather than it trying to really hoodwink people or was it just always the goal was to present it as real? It was always a controversial topic in spiritualism, and to this day, it still is. Clement Turot, I'm probably murdering his beautiful French name, but the, the curator, he he's written really eloquently about how actually what's beautiful about spirit photography is they're, they're two sides of the same coin. They're supposed to prove, but they also disprove at the same time. There's this flickering going on. I don't know what the intention is behind them. The intention of the religion was to merge science and religion. So all of their art is, it's not just art. It's supposed to be evidential. So it's art as evidence. I see. So it's supposed to serve that purpose. And they actually, because they're so science-based, oh, well, this is an experiment to prove. Everything's about proof. But what the pictures do is actually give visual to a spiritual reality or and also act as a point of focus for bodily feats like a lot of catholic saints like saint joseph of cupertino he was like a levitating saint he first levitated when he was looking at a painting of a levitation oh, and like catherine of siena when she first got her stigmata she was looking at a sculpture of christ's stigmata. And that's when she said she got her stigmata. And there's a lot, you know, in human potential. Okay, well, once somebody does the four minute mile, then everybody does the four minute mile because they know it's possible. Like, I don't know. Collective unconscious. It's hard to know. I don't think any of that was necessarily conscious with spiritualism. And in fact, like they're so focused on science they kind of even to this day disregard well there's some fake ones but there's some real ones like you'll you'll hear that a lot like some of those are real but some of them are fake not like oh you know they're fake but they serve a purpose or yeah you know um yeah i watched a program on netflix that was they went to a community in finland it's a spiritualist community there that teaches a lot of mediumship and other classes and I remember there just being such a huge emphasis on all this proof it's real. And it's not that I don't think it's important for a medium to prove that they know what they're talking about and when they work with someone directly that they're accurate. But it it felt like the more you have to prove it and the more you have to rely on some external thing to prove that you're legit, it makes me feel like they're less legitimate, you know, like at this point. I know that's probably not true for everyone because not everyone's so comfortable with just buying in, but it just feels like, well, 
why do you have to talk about it so much if it is real? Can't we just all proceed as if it's real and then the non-believers will drop away or I don't know. One of the mediums in my book, this German medium named Kai Mugi, he says the only innovation in spiritualism was not that there was a spirit world, but that spirits were expected to prove themselves. <laughs> like he says, that's yeah. the main spiritualist innovation. Every culture in every era, in every part of the world has a tradition of spirit communication and speaking with the dead. And the so he was saying, it's there's nothing weird here other than the fact that they were demanding proof. Yes, I'm feeling that. I've totally felt that. I'm like, why? Especially in this one where... The woman's practice was heavy physical mediumship. So she would get locked in this cage and then they'd pull this curtain and she'd be in this box with like no other kind of sensory anything. And then they made a whole show of strapping her in and there's nothing else on her. So then the noises coming out of her, it's only possible that it was her. But then they dimmed the lights really low. So it felt like all the theatricality was Mm -hmm. too again, push the belief around that it's real instead of it just being in broad daylight. And it lacks the confidence of someone knowing that they are actually doing the right thing. Well, there's a huge debate right now in spiritualism because, you know, what what you would normally see is very similar to what you see on those television shows, which is just people talking in a lit room. Nothing, there's no theatrics, there's no dark situations, there's no cabinets, there's no... Tying up, there's no ectoplasm. What? Well, a lot of spiritualists will say that's the way forward. And that's usually what you'll see when you go to a spiritualist church. But then there is a faction within spiritualism that they do do the dark seances, the very theatrical ones where they turn off the lights and they're asking for ectoplasm and they're going into trance and they're using red light to show transfiguration, you know? So, and there's debates like, is that backwards or forwards? And it's really up in the air. And and plus, you know, spiritualism, it was once a hugely popular movement and it no longer is. So there's that too. Do you think it's no longer as popular because pop culture has taken over the imagery and movies and TV and basically everything being released on Netflix sort of uses the language of spiritualism as entertainment? Um, And I think people take it really seriously, both as entertainment, but as, you know, sort of the genre that they're obsessed with. I don't know. I mean, I think that... It initially lost a lot of its popularity because it didn't succeed in its goal, which was to prove that there is a spirit world. I mean, that was the the primary intention, and it would probably start taking the real downturn in the 1930s. But when that was point was undeniable, it just stopped growing. It was no longer a progressive movement. It was something else. It's just this human way of being that erupted in our culture in a different way, in this unique way, this practice that exists in every culture. It's just our form of it, like modern Western scientific cultures uh, version. Yeah. One critique I've heard of it, and then I want to talk about your book, but is that it, some spiritualist churches don't recognize earthbound spirits. I don't know if you know anything about yes. that. Yes. And so... so- 
the person I work with is really heavily involved in spirit rescue. And so she's like, you know, a lot of the churches I work with early on were like, we're not even going to talk about it. It's not a thing. Or they just didn't believe it was true that, you know, you could possibly not go into the light immediately. And so I wonder if maybe some of the strictness around the parameters of what you're allowed to believe within that is maybe kind of leaving them behind. So, you know, spiritualism, there's no hierarchy, there's no dogma, there's no official text, you can ordain yourself, anybody can be a medium, it's very, it, it it's very free in that way, and very progressive in that way. But there are organizations like such as the National Spiritualist Association of Churches, for example, in U.S. and in England, it's the Spiritualist Nationalist Union. They have restrictions around you don't talk to aliens. You don't talk to nature spirits or elemental spirits. You are only if in spiritualism, in in their sanctioned settings, you only speak to the dead and only to make that connection and to prove that the other side exists and to bring forth whatever healing can come forth. And that right. is it. So people get surprised by this, but they're very much like we are not a cult. We are not pagan. We are not witchcraft. We are part of natural law. We are progressive. And it, even to the extent it's a very passive practice in a sense where I'll explain to people, like if you go to a spiritualist medium and you knock on their door and say, I want to talk to so-and-so, They'll probably say, I don't do that. Whoever's going to come in is going to come in. I don't call the names. Which is true. They teach you that in class because you don't know what that person's doing at any given time. Or maybe they're not the person that's got the message for you. Are they setting those parameters because they think to talk to, basically, are things too dangerous outside of those parameters? I believe that that's what it is because, and also if you ask a spiritualist about protection, they'll say, I don't need protection Mm, because I'm not doing, most of their protection comes from, and this is a very touchy subject within spiritualism because they'll say, well, I don't need protection from spirits. You, You need protection from living. People are much scarier than anybody you'll meet in the spirit world. And they just, it's a denial that there's anything scary out there. And also that, their guides are letting through only these deceased relatives. It's like this love connection that's to bring forth healing. So it's very limited in scope mm. what they're doing. And so maybe that in and of itself is protection. And they, they don't, you know, ask spirits to do things or do a magical thing where you're trying to get a, a certain result to happen in the physical world. But We were talking earlier about it not growing. A lot of the people I meet who are very interested in spiritualism are pagans and witches, and they want to bring the spirit communication into their practice. And, you know, an old school spiritualist would be like, well, you can learn my mediumship, but you can't be a pagan. (laughs) You know, it's very, it's an uneasy relationship there. I mean, there's a lot that's similar, but there's a lot that's very different. So yeah, um, that's super interesting. I guess we don't have to go to because like you're not are you part of the spiritualist church? Are you more like I think you described yourself as an anthropologist? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. What I like, how do I put it? I've had like, very intense, beautiful experiences. I believe in mediumship. But I also 
sometimes I don't know what is, I'm unsure what exactly is happening because sometimes I'll see a medium work and I'll really think that they're traveling through time with their mind. Like I really feel like it's more about time. And then other times I'll see a practice and I'll really believe that it's actually, you can feel that it is this person that they are speaking of. And then sometimes I see people who are just totally misguided and I think are just completely not doing anything and maybe not even intentionally. I think it's more so than fraud that I've seen. I've seen misguided work. I think it's easy to be confused. That's interesting. It's so it's a very it's a very confusing thing. So I just consider myself in a constant state of questioning and that now where I am, I have more questions than answers and that is not a cop out is absolutely true. Like I'm true when I'm saying that and this very famous medium who I'm very fascinated with named Eileen Garrett would say, oh, on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I believe. And on Tuesday and Thursday, I don't believe anything that's happened to me is real. Like it's on. And then Sunday, it's, it's I, I forget the quote. It's a famous quote by hers. But I can identify with that. I mean, she, this is a woman, Eileen Garrett, who would hire doctors. She'd say, I'm a fake. Please tell me how and tell me what is happening and why, why I go into trance and speak as other people and get this information because I, you know, I'm open to any explanation. She was open to, oh, it could just be her unconscious or part of herself. It could be a spirit. Totally. Yeah. Well, that's always been the thing. Like I've said from day one, day one is like, I totally am as fascinated as I will ever be by anything in this planet, in this life, in the past, in the future, by the unseen world and the metaphysical world and the energetic world. And I absolutely don't believe in any of it. And I totally believe in all of it. And I I don't even care remotely that those two things exist because they don't even contradict each other. And it doesn't even matter. I'm like, if that is the most fascinating thing I can think about, why does it if I spend my whole time thinking, is it true? Is it true? Is it true? Like, it just doesn't get me anywhere. No, I don't think it's true. It's total nonsense. And then I also think it's the most fascinating thing. Like my feelings, my emotional life, the way I love it, you know, it's like a biochemical mishmash based on narratives and history and genetics, but it's fucking real. It's so real. The way I love my child, the way I'm on this earth, I think my cat looks really cute, you know, like all of this stuff. It's so real. But yeah, I I just think the amount of energy that gets spent on trying to figure out what side of the fence you're on can take a lot out of the joy of the discovery of it. Yeah. And I actually, I'm very wary of people who say they have answers. Those are the people I'm most, who have the fic, like they have it all figured out kind of thing. I always like, and I'm not talking about like, mediums who have a practice and they have a system that works for that or you know they have a thing that they do and they they trust and i i believe that i mean i've seen enough sincere practitioners to understand that whatever is going on is very real for them and that it's something that they can control and it's part of who they are and and but like the guru types i guess i just i'm really try to stay away from and i don't like people who have all the answers or i mean like the people who have all the answers make me doubt even more I think for me, the only place to be is in this state of questioning and trust. I mean, there's certain aspects on my spiritual path that I've learned to trust and that certain people that I work with that I see what's going on with them and it's undeniably real and I can 
feel it and see it and observe it, but I can't prove it. But, you know, yeah. I just, so yeah, I, I try to work with it creatively. Yeah. I mean, have you seen like Tyler Henry, that show on Netflix? I haven't seen the show. I've seen clips of him and I've heard a lot about the show. I haven't watched the show well, yet. Well, like one of the things that he does, and this is what I was trained, you have to kind of come up with a couple details. This is back to the whole, like the spirit's got to prove who they are. So like he always comes up with like a couple details that only the family members would know. And they'll show a, a soundbite of a mom like, well, I wrote on a piece of paper. He needs to talk about this jacket and he needs to talk about baseball and he needs to talk about the cake I made my son when he was 10 or something, you know, and then Tyler will mention all those things in their reading and they go through a lot of process around, you know, he's never met these people before. They've never talked to him. You know, he doesn't even know where he's going the day of. So I feel like I can get behind that level of proof because that is. Just in my experience yeah. has been more similar to the conversations I've had with people when I do a reading, which I don't want to over talk my skill level. But I know that I'm on the right track with someone when I say something and then they're like, oh, yeah, that's from this and da, 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 you know, so I think that's where it's so hard to create this large scale acknowledgement. You kind of have to get individual buy in one person at a time almost, you know, because otherwise, why would you believe anything unless it happens to you? Right. And you're never, what's that cliche? If you believe there's no way to convince people it's not happening. And if they don't believe you, it's all about personal experience. And also too, what I've learned about readings is when you're watching somebody get a reading, you're not seeing the interior part of the the process. There's so much of it you're missing by being an observer. You really have to be a participant I was just thinking like if you watch a doctor perform surgery and nobody's talking, you have absolutely no idea what you're looking at. All you see is silence and somebody looking like they're, you know, cutting up a slice of watermelon, which is so disgusting. I will never see that again. But you know, you have no information that's going back and forth. You don't know what the feedback loops are. You don't know like the energy that's being created. You don't know anything. Right. Like where his intuition is guiding him versus what he's been trained in. Yeah. 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 Oh, I like that analogy. The watermelon. No, just kidding. Well, no. Yeah, certainly not. I know. Never again. Never again. Maybe we can switch gears and talk about your book. Oh, unless you had something to say about that. Well, no, I mean, it kind of leads into my book. A point that I use to people who are most skeptical is the the grieving mothers that I've met and how strong, like, I would never tell one of them that they are not having those experiences, because they'll tell you it's more real than this reality. And that, you know, me, myself, I'm a mother. And, you know, if you think about birth, and I really feel like birth is also, you know, you bring forth life, but you're also getting right up close to death when you do it. And so it's sort of this initiation. And why wouldn't women know more about life and death? who who are connected in that way and then to hear the experiences that they have that i mean and it's over and over and over again like many 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 of these women it's just like it's very compelling when you look at it that way and think of it that way like i i think some of that is the most you know again not provable but compelling and i kind of became really very interested in this woman i don't know if you ever heard of her madonna badger 
she was an advertising exec in New York and her house went on fire and her three children and her parents died in this fire. Mm. And she said, I just assumed that I would kill myself. And, and everybody I knew just assumed that I would kill myself. But I started having these experiences with the spirits of my children. And it was so real. It was more real than anything I ever experienced in this world. And that I decided that if there was even a chance that me taking my own life would put me in a different place from where they were, Mm -hmm. if there was something in the process that I would screw up, I couldn't even take that chance. And I just thought that was like really, really powerful. I think there's something really, that's just an interesting way to contemplate spiritualism. Mm -hmm. And, And the grieving mothers were the ones who are responsible for spiritualism becoming I mean, they're, they're, it's a huge force within spiritualism. Oh, interesting. Is that from the Civil well, War? Yeah. I mean, there's lots of child mortality and also mothers. Trigger warning for Liz. No, it's fine. I always, if these topics ever come up, I just start to cry. I know. But like, I will. It's so hard to, like, I can't even, it's hard for me to watch any of the ones where they talk to grieving mother. Yeah. It's just, it's so primally wrong that it, I mean, it's just, it's a mess. But, and so I talk about this in the book and because, you know, the book is photographs, but also I did hundreds of interviews too. And I kind of like told the stories behind my pictures in the book as well. And it's for a lot of the the grieving mothers I met, these experiences saved their lives. Oh. Their children, their the, these experiences with the children actually saved their lives and improved their lives and helped build their new lives. Oh, totally. It yeah. just, when I hear it, I'm like, no, 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 I can't ever do it. I freak no, out. I, I want to run away from it. It absolutely is. So yeah. And, and the book, so the first part of the book, you know, when I first, I know it's different now because you have things like the Milk of Dreams show at the Venice Biennale, where there was a whole pavilion of seance photography and and Hilma F. Clint show is so well-received and hugely popular at the Guggenheim. But in 2001, when I first started, I was also working as, you know, I was shooting for magazines and I was doing like newspaper photography. I was, And I would bring these pictures and try to explain. And I was referencing and building off inspired by spiritualist visuals, but I had to tell the stories or I had to explain the whole history every time I showed the pictures. So I did the book, like the first part of the book is essays that are illustrated that talk about the visual history of spiritualism. And then the second part is just, it's a series of my pictures that run without text. And then at the end, there's it's an index with the thumbnails. And then I tell the stories and the history and explain the context of the picture. And I get to tell some of my spooky and funny stories too. Oh, nice. Well, I would love to hear that. I don't know if we have more questions, but are you basically, because the first part you said, you know, you felt like you had to re-explain the history of that type of photography. Do you feel like you're creating a contemporary context for that and almost backfilling the canon by making this work now? Well, I... I don't know. I mean, I didn't really even understand my my role very well or what I was doing for so long. But now I do see myself as sort of like saving some of contemporary history. But also the there's a curator who wrote 
an essay for my book. His name is Andreas Fisher, and he was one of the curators for the the Met show, The Perfect Medium. That was it's it started out in two thousand four, two thousand and five. But he says that why my project is unique is because there was never a photographer who looked so extensively at the practices. They were bringing cameras into seance rooms to to experiment, of course. But like, I'm I'm documenting everything that, you know, I'm trying to tell the full story, the full picture of spiritualism. And there's never been a project that went so in depth with the process to show it, not just in the moment of seance, but to talk about it more broadly. So it's a unique project in that sense. I can't believe I'm going to make this analogy, but I'm forgetting his name. He is so famous and he's a photographer who passed away maybe less than 10 years ago, and he photographed his family in Florida, and he taught at California College for the Arts. Oh, Salton? Right. And he did that He did that book on porn movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in the Valley, and it was basically bringing cameras in to photograph the industry of porn outside of the movies of it. So sort of the A to Z of it, but in a way that captures, you know, both the mundane and the, like the exhausting, the entire world around it. And I mean, just the way you're describing that made me think of that book where you have these worlds, which people, they can recognize, like somebody could recognize a seance from like a million miles away, but sort of the before, during, after the thought process what it actually, what the transactions are, what the impacts are, like just aren't known. And so to have that wider lens on the experience. And I love that book. I thought that was such yeah. an amazing book. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a really cool analogy. And I haven't thought about that book. I'm a Larry Selton fan, but I haven't thought about that book in a long time. It sounds like your work wasn't always as widely accepted. I know you mentioned that now with the biennial, Supernatural America, you know, a lot of exhibitions that are kind of embracing the spirit world within the academic institutional art world. But you said when you first started making work about this, you were not having such an easy go of it. Maybe you could tell that story. Yeah. I mean, with these topics, like with anything quote unquote paranormal, there is this attraction repulsion thing going on. And also my big crime is that I'm not making fun of it and I'm not Mm -hmm. trying to disprove it or, or, you know, like I'm actually questioning or I have an open question and I'm giving the practitioners respect. And so I think if I had taken another approach, maybe people would have been more comfortable and it's, you know, I've had a lot of wonderful response, but a lot of like, oh God, this is horrible or like get a you know get out of here this is yeah like you know I, I was literally kicked out of a photo editor's office for bringing my portfolio of spiritualism wait publication oh in new york in new york it, it was, i don't want to say the title but yeah but i was i was asked to leave well they're you know like kicking themselves now i don't know i mean i still get the weirdest feedback. You know, I, I, there is definitely a more openness and a lot of people don't know where to kind of like, I don't fit into an easy box. 
the project kind of doesn't fit into an easy box. And I, you know, I never really fit in anywhere with it. So I guess it just is what it is. That's why I'm so thankful to now have done the book because I think I was really able to communicate what I was trying to do with the book. Can you just tell the story about grad school? Because you ended up leaving partway through, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I had started a graduate degree and basically it was just made clear, like, you're not going to get your degree if you do this work. You have to do something else. And what were you doing at the time? I wanted to do my spiritualism work. And I I have a question, though, about directly about this. If you had taken the same photographs you took and just brought it in with another set of sentences, would they have been fine with it? Like, were they actually even looking at the pictures? I don't know. Maybe it was the content. I mean, I had literally had some of the professors in the program laughing at my work, like making fun of me. And so I consider my book kind of my graduate degree, or I just said, well, I'll just got to do this. I couldn't even get one grant for this. I worked as a photographer and I funded every single part of it. And even now, I just recently applied for a grant And you can call and get the feedback. It's three judges. You get to hear what they say. And like the first judge was like, wow, this is like really unexplored territory. But, you know, I just like the straightforward stuff. I'm not into the experimental pictures. And then the second person was like, oh, this has been done. Like everybody knows about spirit photography. Like your claims of pioneerism are like alarming. Everybody's known about this for decades. And I was like, well, I did start the project two decades ago. And no, like it really, really wasn't something that was really that popular then. And then the third person was like, oh, the lack of, her lack of unironically taking it at face value, losing this opportunity to not like, kind of editorialize or like it's right, just, just documenting rather than it was a really confusing sentence but it was basically saying like leaving it unexamined like not saying it's not true right. is is yeah. really this is absurd I think you know they would have been happy if you had sort of like Mary Ellen marked the situation and been like I'm going in to examine and I'm going to document and I'm going to you know, aestheticize things in this very particular uh, way that, that shows my craft, you know? I mean, that's you know. a good point. I guess also too, this was my big problem always with this project is, and photojournalism in general, where it was like very clear, you just go somewhere, you decide what you think about these people and you use your eye to create what you're, what you are seeing about their lives. And then you present your version of them And that's what a photographer does. And I always felt also too, that these mediums were very sensitive people and they were trusting me with this most like personal aspect of their life. And that I couldn't just take a picture abstracted from that and just put it out there and say what I wanted about it without them saying that they liked it. And yes, it was respectful towards them and getting to tell part of their story too. So there's not one picture in the book that people didn't want or didn't know was being published or didn't approve and didn't like. And that's why I did the interviews too, because then they they get to talk about it too. I mean, I just always had, I think photography is very subversive in that way, or especially like some of my journalism colleagues, you know, you just go to some country you've never been before, you hang out there for three weeks, and then you go tell everybody what it's Mm -hmm. about. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying it's subversive. It's like... Well, that's kind of bad. I mean, potentially, right? 
Well, it's like more, well, I mean, it has a place in terms of like quickly yeah. saying what's happening on the other right. side of the world, you know, like well, you're this, saying, and this, and this is. This is also what I think about photography too. It's like, it's telepathic. It's really like you putting your mind into into this physicality in a mm-hmm. way, because what is a photographer's eye? Right. Like, you know, you see them in their pictures. You literally see them. Like Deanne Arbus. You see how they see. Yeah. Like with the first time I ever saw Deanne Arbus's picture, she's, that's the reason I became a photographer. I saw her work and I was like, oh my God, you can tell people what you're thinking or you can project your thoughts onto the world and tell them to other people in a picture. That's what photography is. Oh my God. I, I felt like it was telepathic. I felt like you're, it's not just symbol creating. It's also like you're embedding your consciousness just by what you're showing with your, literally not just your eyes, your consciousness is like embedded in this. Well, yeah. And you can and, use those photo. I mean, this is maybe not regardless of the photographer, but you can read people's energy from photos. So there's this other element of capturing someone's energy, both the person who took it and the person in it, where you can literally do a medium reading from a photo. Wow. Yeah. Which I don't know if anyone's explored that, but it's kind of wild to think about. Well, yeah. And every photograph is a spirit photograph because that moment is dead and that part of you, you've already moved on from it. And then when you die, it lives and, and it is light and time. Those are the raw materials of photography, which is very heavy too. If you think about like it's light and time and you're playing with those things. And yeah, so I'm jealous of photographers who can do a book and not have to have one word in it. And they're just, you get it and it's complete. And I tried to be that photographer so hard (laughs) and I just could not do that with this project. It was impossible. So then I became a writer too through this. And I'm really enjoying now using photography and writing together. I mean, I do wonder, and I I don't usually say this, but like if you were a man, you know, if there would be less persistence for you to like justify and explain sort of what your point of view is. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I I mean, mean, I always go back to the attraction repulsion thing. These topics flourish in fiction, but in reality, it's it's a whole other it's a whole other thing like you were saying about Netflix like being everywhere but it's also fictionalized it, the the fiction makes it yeah. safe I'm just going to say that yeah so it's safer as a metaphor you know, than it is as like a real experience yeah mm-hmm. so i haven't said this directly but i'm such a fan girl of your actual images the picture by picture i am obsessed with them and so emotionally i you know i really respond to them photography was my first love language visually Mm -hmm. and you know I got kind of not like ruined by photo school but you know when I saw Sally Mann's first book I had a nervous breakdown it was just so unbelievable to me so uh, there's still that like part of me that's like oh I just respond to it and I see it and I'm like oh that's it you know that's it we don't have to talk about it again. There it is. So I was really trying to sit with your book, or at least on the internet, because I can't get a copy yet. And I put my pre-order in, by the way. So I'm I'm one of Thank the you. people waiting. Thank you. But you know who I am emotionally like connecting to your work is Wolfgang Tillman's. And really? I oh. I know that I mean I was like, I wonder if I say that, if that's gonna sound oh. weird or if you're a fan or Oh yeah, um, no, I am he's not like a huge influence, but I love 
everything. I thank you for all you said, because I am truly, truly, truly a photo geek at heart. Like it's my first love. Like, well, I have to, okay, I'm sorry. I have to say one more thing and then I promise I will shut up about this, but there's this very annoying trend. Okay. Tell me how you really think in contemporary photography to drill into photo projects that have one aesthetic look and then go down into it over and over and over again. So it's like, if you're, book is about trees. It's like one tree over and over and over again, very drilled down. And, you know, I've always thought our emotional richness comes from associating and associating is the absolute core of emotion building, relation building, spirituality. It's not one thing seen over and over again, like little Stieglitz and his clouds making equivalents between things. And so like one of the things that your book does when I look at it is the emotional equivalence that you're building between disparate subject matters is fucking killing me. Wolfgang Tillman's, when you look at his stuff, when it's so raw, it's just like a shoe. It's a nothing and it holds every emotional reality. The lust. I always think of his, his stuff as very lusty, like you're about to take your clothes off and you know <laughs> run upstairs or something. But it's just like a shoe or a stair or a fork or, or a nothing and it, it holds everything. It's like this infinite capsule. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's like a huge, huge compliment to be compared to him. And obviously he's one of the, the photo gods. But yeah, what you're saying too, I felt very alienated from the photo world. I, I felt like you see all those photo books and it's like, who are they for? They're, I don't know. Yeah. I wanted to have a book that my aunt, who doesn't know about photography, she wouldn't feel alienated mm -hmm. from. Like, I feel like a lot of those books are just for like this echo chamber of themselves and you know and some of them look so hot and you pick them up and then you just go through them and you're just like oh I'm just like not I don't I feel drained by this I don't feel excited like there's so many photo books now you know and they're they're oh, clever yeah. but I don't know because I felt so alienated from the photo world I I just made a book for multiple audiences which I would say would be like spiritualist audience or people who are into the paranormal or people who are into this type of art and also photography, because I just felt personally alienated from photo world, even though I love photography so much. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Sure, totally. Yeah. Well, they didn't do right by you, man. I mean, your <laughs> graduate person laughed at you. Why would you like photography? They're representing the institution to you. I know nothing about that world, but I do hear echoes of peaks I have of contemporary painting where you're expected to produce this collection of the same painting over and over again for a show and or like for years on end, you know, where you have your brand of like the type of work that you do and then you just produce it. And yeah, looking at your work, I would say the, I feel like your work is very painterly and the way that you're constructing compositions and not just drilling into the same subject over and over again, that is in painting and whatever else, definitely more what I resonate with. And yeah, I feel like a lot of it just has to do with the market potentially too. They want to be able to brand you as this type of artist. And if you don't have the same subject matter over and over, you have to come up with some other way of describing it, in which case, I think making your own book where you create a context for your work is kind of brilliant. I mean, do you feel like now that you've done this, you are being received in a way that you want or? 
Yeah, I mean, I just feel like the timing was kind of oddly perfect because my book ended up coming out after the Hilma Offclan oh, wow. show. And I think that really did announce the topic. And now, you know, in photo, there's even this new genre that they're talking about called photo brute, mm -hmm. which is kind of embracing not only spiritualist photography, but also visionary use of photography. I actually wrote a review of that book and I said, photography is already faced off with painting and it's already proved it's valid. So now we're kind of free to explore its strangeness and its more primal aspects. It's not trying to compete with painting. That conversation is done. So now it's like kind of safe to go back. But also it's not reality. So you also don't have the pressure of being like, this is a documentation mm -hmm. of a true moment. In painting, yeah. In photography, oh, like everybody yeah. knows photography isn't real either. So then I feel like you're now free from both those constraints potentially. Yeah. So I, I kind of feel like photography's teeth can be let out or we can look at kind of its more primal aspects. Like it's magic using it to talk about obsession and voyeurism and talismanic properties or its metaphysical properties. So I think there's like a more openness, I just think, to the maybe the topic of spirit photography in general. Mm -hmm. And it's just it's just odd timing. But I mean, it did take 20 years. Yeah. You right. know. I had this feeling that Hilma of Clinton, you know, because she preserved her work for like a hundred years and then was like, it is only to be released at this time. And then it's going to be in the Guggenheim before it was built. But I feel like potentially with, I, I had this like hit that she's somehow something about that timing with your work that there was some kind of spirit support behind the timing of your work. Because if you had released your book 10 years earlier, there just wouldn't have been the same audience, you know, whereas now yeah. you had her, mm show and then you're coming for the second round of it post pandemic when we're all grasping for anything mm -hmm. spiritually oriented and I don't know so it feels yeah. like that is not an accident is just when you were talking about that thank thank you I like that yes it does feel very right and I feel very excited about the timing and it does feel like people are more open and more excited about the work than at any other point really. So it's good. Yeah. Do you have any other projects or well, when does your book come out? And then what are you kind of doing? over So the next my book, I think it's available for pre-order and it's a, a little bit behind with pandemic and shipping and all that. So I think the date is December 6th now. Oh, so okay. before I, Christmas, you can pre-order it. Just go to the, the big Amazon in the sky yeah. and press click. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I also, I host a symposium every year in Lilydale, where I try to bring in people who are doing art or scholarship about spiritualism or the supernatural or related topics or altered states. And, and I think this year it's going to be two days. It's usually one day. So if anybody's interested, Jesse has been a speaker at Jesse Bransford, who oh, awesome. was so articulate in his interview. And I really, really oh, enjoyed it. God, very hard act to follow. <laughs> so if anybody's interested in that, my website, shannontaggart.com, you can sign up for my mailing list. That's usually what I, I'm telling a lot about the My Lilydale event on my mailing list. What's the name of that one? Um, I'm 
thinking of changing the name right now. It's called the Science of Things Spiritual Symposium, but I think I'm going to change it to the spirits to simplify, (laughs) but it's not just about spiritualism. It's about the history and study of the supernatural and its effect on culture. And this year uh, we'll have a presentation about, I shouldn't say too much, but the Shaker era manifestation is one of our topics. We're going to have a lot of people who've done really good books. I'm doing a whole day of people going to talk about their books and have their books there. And I will be there with Sam. Nice. Yeah. So it's all coming together now. And so, so that'll be out. And then I'm working on a new book, that I won't get into too crazily, but it's actually an archive book that I'm editing and writing about. And it's the American poet, John Nyhart, who wrote the book, Black Elk Speaks, started a seance group with his students in the 60s. And it went on for like 50 years. And they were studied by all these famous parapsychologists. And I have, I have the whole entire archive. And it's never been seen before. A few of the pictures were in the Perfect Medium show, but it's a really big archive and there's film and there's audio and it's just, it's a crazy, crazy, I mean, the whole thing is, there's no other word for it, but other than totally bonkers, but in the best way, it's like really wild material. So I'm really excited. It's overwhelming, but really exciting. I'm authoring, I'm not being a photographer in that, It's but I am still working on my own photography too. Amazing. Awesome. That sounds so good. Well, um, I guess we should wrap it up a little bit. Thank, thank you, you so much for this conversation. I'm so thank excited. Thank you. Thank you. That was so, yeah. so fun. And I'm really enjoying your, I've recognized a few names and I listened to a few and I listened to Jesse's oh, just thanks. yesterday. So it's cool, oh my cool gosh. to be We're on. so happy to have you. Thank you Thank so you. Bye. Thank you for having me. That's all for this week's episode. Thanks for side-wooing with us. We release episodes every other week on Thursday. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast for good karma points. Until we meet again in the woo.